Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Dragons. I have with me today uh, Lou Anders, someone I've been working with uh, for the past two years, Lou? One year? Has it been a year? Year and a half? Year and a half sounds right. We'll go with that. We'll split yeah. the difference. Okay, cool. Yeah, and uh, if you'd like to tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself before we start to roll into uh, you know what we're talking about today. Sure. So I'm Lou Anders, and I am a writer and game designer. Uh, I've been in some facet of science fiction, fantasy, entertainment, publishing since 1994 or 5. I've been a journalist in Hollywood, a, a, a dot-com guy, a editor and art director in science fiction, fantasy, publishing, a children's book author. And now um, I, I created Lazy Wolf Studios to publish uh, 5e setting material based on my novels. Wonderful. And... I've I found you personally, like when I've always talked to you and everything like that, um, very generous with your time, obviously coming on the podcast. But then also, um, it seems like you have so much knowledge and varied experience that I really wanted to get into where you initially started, which can seem like it was a lot. But at the same time, you really just did it one submission at a time. And I read that you had written over 500 articles between 1994 and 1999 to various magazines um, to do with uh, that appeared with in the Babylon 5 magazine, the Doctor Who magazine, Dreamwatch, Manga Mix, Sci-Fi Universe, Star Trek and Star Wars Monthly. Um, what was your process like for that? And did you intend to write one article every three days for five years? Or was that just something that happened every time you got drunk or something? I no, no, I never intended to be a journalist. I, um, I had moved out to Los Angeles to, uh, to try and act, which was ridiculous, and had been working as a production assistant on, on rock music, rap music videos, and infomercials. And, uh, and that dried up. And I, uh, father was like, I will send you a plane ticket home if you will go to law school. And I went out for a three-hour jog to figure out what I was going to do with my life because I absolutely did not want to be a lawyer. And... Uh, at the end of three hours, I realized I had an English degree. I knew some people who wrote Doctor Who novels for the for the um, the old uh, uh, Virgin Books line, the New Adventures and the Classic Adventures. And I knew a guy at Capitol Records who had discovered the Foo Fighters. And so I thought I will be a journalist. I will either be a rock journalist or a science fiction journalist. And I flipped a coin. He flipped a coin. Oh, <laughs> I, flipped, I, I flipped a literal coin. And sci-fi journalist won. So I went to the, to the store and I bought all the science fiction magazines and I wrote every single one of them offering my services. Saying wow. I wanted to write about, I wanted to do a, a, a like a round robin interview with all the Doctor Who novelists I knew. None of them responded except for a magazine called Sci-Fi Universe, which doesn't exist anymore, but was owned at the time by Larry Flint. It was like the only non-porn magazine in the Hustler stable. <laughs> And okay. the managing editor wrote me back and said, we don't give a crap about Doctor Who, um, but we've been invited to this uh, this convention down in Irvine, California. So how about you go on our behalf and write about it and we'll publish it. <laughs> so I yeah. went to Irvine, California, and I interviewed everybody and I spent like tons on it. And um, I, I mean, tons of effort. Not And I wrote this one little article while I was there. I met. Um, Jean-Marc Lefizier, who was the fan rep for a, the, the fan liaison for a time between the 1996 Fox BBC co-production of Doctor Who with Paul McCann 
and the fan base. And uh, I interviewed John Magnificia about it. And then a week later, he calls me up and says that Titan Magazine want to start a Star Trek magazine, a Star Trek, Star Trek Monthly. And they offered him the job to, to be their liaison in Los Angeles. He didn't want it, so he recommended me. So Nick Landau of Titan Magazines comes over and uh, takes me out for breakfast. And I have never written anything. I have no published credits. I have a dot matrix printout of my one little Doctor Who article. And that's right. all I've got, all I've got to my name. And he keeps asking me questions about how would you approach this and how would you approach that and what is your background in this and what is your familiarity with Star Trek, which I wasn't watching at the time. And I just looked at him and said, Nick, you will never find in all of Los Angeles a better Star Trek journalist than me. Yeah. And he would say, well, what about blah, 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 blah. And I said, Nick, that doesn't matter. You will never find in all of Los Angeles a better Star Trek journalist than me. And this was the, my desperation to avoid law school, right? Because it was yeah. a ball face lie. I repeated that for an hour, and I got the job. <laughs> I'll finish. And uh, they were starting up Star Trek to be modeled on Empire Magazine, British film magazine. And it was going to be like an 80-page magazine full of, of articles and photos. And, you know, at the time, the fan magazines were little flimsy things that were like interview with one person and then five pages of advertising and then maybe another retrospective piece. And so there was no process in place at Paramount Studios to handle anything like this. And we had to build out the process. We had to, to, to establish the communication network, work on I mean, just sourcing. We need like 125 photos to fill an 80-page magazine and getting permissions from all that. And all that work funneled through me. And uh, I made regular trips to Paramount. And then they launched Babylon 5 magazine. I didn't even watch Babylon 5. I would not watched it since the pilot. And I had to go back and watch all the episodes up to where they were. And, uh, and I ended up spending three to five days a week during the seasons on Babylon 5. I would go in and, and uh, to the set and just sit there all day and eat, eat craft services and and to 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 his credit uh jms didn't want it to be about him he wanted that probably now in retrospect but he was just too busy some little journalist following around but he said talk to everybody go everywhere do it you know do anything you want talk to anyone you want celebrate all the people working on the show so i hung out in the makeup trailer i hung out in the in the the the, 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 the prop master bear burge taught me how to pour resin molds and and i i got to go you know i talked to people in the costume department i i just hung out and learned everything there was to learn about television production in the in the in in that period we were you know really really hungry for materials so i wrote 500 articles across five years by the end of it um I, I probably shouldn't name names. One of the Star Trek producers told me that I was his favorite journalist, and uh, one of the exec, executive producers. And at, at another point, another another television show asked if it was possible to let all fan magazines just have to go through me and not let anybody else on set. That's not possible. I was flattered, but that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. So my bold faced lie about how you'll never find a better Star Trek journalist than me was true by the end of it. But uh, <laughs> you lived and, up to your prophecy. Yes, but it was an amazing time, and it, and it was just, you know, go to set, read the dailies, figure out who I could talk to that day, watch the shooting, talk to them in the, in the afternoon, go home, write it up. I don't know what I was expecting from that answer, but it wasn't that. <laughs> that was that was quite the story. Okay, cool. That is super cool. You know, that, that the, one of the things about that was that I learned a lot about television production. I also learned, you know, to write fast. Right. Uh, I also learned to get over the sound of my own voice because I taped everything and transcribed it. So I very oh. quickly, I no longer sound different to myself on tape, you know, or, gotcha. or recording, not tape. It was tape. Right. And then um, for you, then it was really like you had to master your system of writing 
the way that you outlined and like you structured things to be able to produce content very quickly. Yes. You're a big outliner or do you think you're a drafter then? I'm a big outliner. So while I was in Los Angeles, I uh, actually this, this goes back a little bit prior to it. Um, before Los Angeles, I was in Chicago for two years. And while I was in Chicago, I met this guy named Dan Decker. Dan had watched the 100 highest grossing films or most popular films of, of the, this is 1992, like, 93. For me, it's 94. So, I mean, it it's not, but the then top films and distilled a system of screenwriting out of them. And I took Dan, I took a class Dan had taught for someone else. And after the class was over, Dan calls me up and says, you know, I didn't really like that. I've created my own class. Would you take it and tell me what you think? And Dan's a genius. And I started taking all his classes and he became a friend and he became a screenwriting mentor. So out in Los Angeles, I also, while I'm doing all the journalism, started writing screenplays with a partner. And we uh, we never had anything made. We had several things option. You know, Hollywood will will pay a little bit of money to take something off the table and then develop it. If they, if they then make it into a movie, then you get the rest of the money. We never had a movie made but we had several production companies option our stuff and we even got hired by a production company to write something once and so we were sent around i mean i you know we were pitching we were the we were the they have nothing to show for it we were briefly the hot guys and uh you know we pitched uh michael bay and and his people and we pitched uh just a number of other high ups in hollywood that's wild that was that was heat like heat came out at that time right that was was a great movie oh yeah but we pitched that there was a movie I know what you did last summer. Oh yeah, uh, the guys that did that did Volcano, and we pitched uh-huh. them on uh, a What if Jesus Christ had children movie, and they were like, "Oh, we can't do that; it's too similar to something else." And I've always wondered, was that Da Vinci Code? Was that <laughs> against Da Vinci Code? <laughs> Um, and Michael Bay came back and told us that we had a movie about a, 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 a military team sent to hell. We pitched it to Michael Bay and his head of production spent two hours trying to convince him to take it and then came back and told us we can't do it. It's too similar to another project. And when Armageddon came out, uh, that whole scene where they put him in the cyclotron and spin him around and around and get him used to go to space. We were like, yeah, we did that, too. That's I mean, I'm not saying he took it. I'm just like, I, 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 you get to the asteroid in Armageddon and all, and it doesn't look like any asteroid you've ever seen. It's all these black, spiky, right. gothic looking spires of ice. And I'm like, yep, hell it, it, no wonder he didn't want to do it. It's, we, we had so many parallels with Armageddon. It wasn't even funny. Right. And, uh, so anyway, um, interesting. Okay. That's super I've cool. Stolen, but I've also had stuff that like I was writing a script for Star Trek and I turn on Star Trek and watch it. And oh. I hadn't shown anyone, I hadn't printed it out, yeah. I hadn't sent it anywhere. And it, it wasn't stolen at all. It was but it was beat for beat, word for word my script. It was the same characters interacting in the same in the same environments, saying the same things. Yeah. And so I mean the collective con- unconscious is also out there, you know. Yeah. I think that's all five other people writing the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I always think that's true, especially for established uh, media like Star Trek, where you kind of know the formula um, for a lot of these screenplays or these scripts for these shows. The formula is there. The character interactions are there. And but I had like. Uh, when I was an editor to Hop Ahead, I had uh, Chris Robertson, Ian McDonald were both writing stories. One became the novel Brazil, and the other was the novel End of the Century. And they were totally different, different settings, different different parts of the country. But they were both about computers at the end of time that used agents to, to zip through the multiverse on their behalf and ensure their survival. And the agents both had one 
used the sword Excalibur in one book, and the other used a sword that was Han to the plank length so it could cut through anything. Oh. And I'm like, this is incredible. These guys are both writing the novels and showing me bits of it at the same time. They're both about <laughs> to use it at the time. They both use time-hopping agents going about the multiverse, and they both have swords that can cut anything in half. Yeah. And, uh, I think especially with... It, it is funny how sometimes those current events and those like pop culture things can like kind of spring up at the same time. And I think, uh, especially with the uh, nuclear fission news, we're going to see a ton of nuclear fission sci-fi movies here in the next two years. Um, yeah, so you mentioned being an editor. Let's let's transition to uh, talking about you being an editor and your time doing that and what your experience was like. Well, so um, I'm in L.A. for five years and production starts moving out of Los Angeles to uh, Vancouver. It actually, it's probably not quite Vancouver yet. It's probably all going to Australia. And so there's less and less work for me to do. And then I get a call from an ex-girlfriend who is starting, who's gone off to Harvard and gotten a business degree and is starting a dot-com to-do browser-based online book and wants me to come run it, uh, to be the content guy. And I have no interest at all, but she invites me up to San Francisco to see it, and it's fascinating. And I end up working for bookface.com. If only mm. we had those words it's backwards as facebook we would have been billionaires we just <laughs> um and it's a browser-based and we we uh reading experience and we ended up having all the major publishers online and tons of independent publishers we had we were the first site to have because amazon and bnn.com let you link to both instead of having to pick either or and uh and we did this thing for a year we rode the dot com up and down and when it collapsed, I knew tons of science fiction. The the most uh, eager people to adopt new technology were uh, Romance Writers of America, actually. But after them, the science fiction and fantasy rush. So I parlayed that relationship into my first short story anthology in 2001 when the dot-com crashed. And from there, I started doing uh, freelance short story anthologies. And then I got hired um, by Prometheus Books, which was a... Uh, uh, an independent mid-sized publisher up in Buffalo that did mostly philosophical humanist works that wanted to get into science fiction. And I created Pyre Books for them. And uh, for 10 years, I ran that imprint. We we um, we ended up publishing at one point up to like 30 books a year and, uh, and put out a out 200 novels in that time i think yeah and uh i see so many listed awards yeah for yeah. this publisher like <laughs> i am we, amazed got so yeah and we also um so uh i came on board there and uh, you know and i i and it was you know the art department was like what what do you want the logo to be like and i'm like i don't know maybe something like this and i sketch something on a piece of paper and they, it comes back and that's the logo you know and then i i'm talking to the production manager and she's like well what do you want the paper stock to be and i go well i'm you know i i, I wouldn't mind if it was like an off-white you know 30 way or whatever and she's like okay you're the boss and i go i am <laughs> i am probably shouldn't have told me that and uh but the the art department was great, but they were they were they were used to just slapping you know a public domain image on a if you're republishing like the works of of Wittgenstein or something it doesn't really matter what the cover is and so they just had an assembly line mentality that had been drilled into them and when we did our first uh, science fiction book the cover came back and it was terrible 
they they'd used like a cheesy image and a font that said something like you know it was like like picking sci-fi or futura or something for the font and i looked took one look at that and said oh my god we're gonna be the laughing stock and i called up my friend john picasso who's a very famous artist out in texas he, he's worked with Everybody, he did the Song and Ice and Fire calendar right before Game of Thrones came out and had some influence over what the casting of those characters looked like, I believe. And and uh, because he was the last person to provide a un, unfiltered look at what they what they might look like. And uh, and um, Irene Gallo, the art director at Tor, and I was like, help, help me, please. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I know this is bad. And Irene, bless her, sent me a package of about... 30 cover flats that she had gone through with 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 uh with um you know like uh ink markers and silver ink markers and just circled things and said this is why i did this here this is an example of this kind of treatment this is why i use this font here and it was like an instruction manual of loose leaf pages to teach me how to put covers together and john for a while anytime we get a cover back from the art department i would send it to john and say help and john would mark it up and send it back to me and then i would tell the art department you know i would put it back into my words say have you tried this and have you tried that and over the course of about a year john did that for me uh secretly and then in the second year i started uh you know it became instead of just asking john help and john telling me what to say i would say to john what do you think about this what do you think about that and john would say yes or no and then you know two years into it i was calling the shots and then the third year i got nominated i got nominated i got listed as the art director in as some of our images made the spectrum annual of best art of the year i had to go to the actual art director and be like uh they're calling me the art director are you cool with that she said you are the art director for this line that's what you're doing and so from that point forward my job description became art director and uh you know we took the training wheels off and and for the remaining like eight years i was the art director and started getting art director not chelsea nominations and then won a chelsea award for art director so uh, you know again it was it was i I took on the job out of self-defense and uh and and made it real over time Mm -hmm. that's so that's so wild that's like so learning on the job simply because like you were the only person around who like was like okay yeah i can do that and then you're like shit 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 (laughs) (laughs) if i don't do this it's gonna look horrible because no one has enough about what the books look like bring the same sense of eloquence to design that you would do if you were writing if this was a novel of 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 the 1800s or something what would you do for that cover do that for this yeah Forget all those flashy fonts and and let's go for dignity and eloquence every time. And starting from that as a base, we worked out and we came up and and they 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 also it took it took an adjustment in the way they thought about things. But then the art department fell in love with it because because no one had appreciated what they were doing. And so they really flowered and we got some just beautiful things. And I we changed the conversation in science fiction, fantasy publishing because Prior to us, reviews never mentioned book cover art. And we noticed that our book cover review, when people reviewed our books, they started adding this last paragraph of, hey, and I just need to say that the cover is fabulous, or I just want to point out how good this cover is. And that became like standard in the end of all of our reviews. And then suddenly reviews started talking about the 
the art in in all the science fiction magazines and publications that reviewed books started including the discussion of the cover art in their discussion and that was totally a charge that we we led and i'm so proud of because in this age of ai generated art uh, i want to just say that we are privileged in the imaginative arts to have had such a close working relationship with so many fantastic artists whether that's books or games or, or the concept art in films it's a privilege to work with these people it we, we the imaginative arts could not stand without them and the fact that so many people are throwing up their linza portraits and 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 posting their ai creations is making me sick because it's it's really throwing half of our community under the bus so i've been furiously commissioning art as fast as i can every time i every time i see somebody post one of their ai generated images i go out and commission another drawing from someone alive yeah that's a really unfortunate uh progression i think for right now there just isn't as much education about how uh ai generated art is theft and right now even for the laws which will be very slow to change as everything is in america the laws right now don't even allow you to own the copyright of any um, AI-generated art because it doesn't belong to a human. It wasn't created by a human. It was stolen from other humans. Legal ramifications of AI art are potentially like coming down the pipe here pretty quickly. Um, and we'll s- probably start to see some lawsuits in the near future once people start making money on AI art, for sure. Like and if you that. train your AI art on someone's, uh, on an artist or whatever, like why shouldn't they be able to sue you? Or at least benefit from it. If we can't put the genie back in the bottle, then they need to be, people need to be able to opt in and opt out or take a percentage of whatever payment yeah. is being made. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely wrong that um, people are using AI art to train and then steal art and then sell it somewhere else. Um, yeah. So moving on to just where your kind of basis was for, uh, the Thrones and Bones novels, the young adult novels. And I know you've done some work for Star Wars as yep. well, if you want to talk about um, that. So um, I'm, I'm an editor now in science fiction and fantasy. I'm doing this for 15 years. Somewhere in there, I start trying to write my own stuff, which feels like a return to when I used to write scripts, right? Don't want to write adult material because all of my friends, really tremendous writers, and I'm totally fine being their peer as an editor, you know, where I'm holding all the cards. But I don't want to come back to the table as the newbie and be judged by these geniuses that I surround myself <laughs> with. So I figure I'll pick a different arena. And I've got small children at the time, so that's cool. And uh, and I start trying to write children's books. And I write um, one that I still love that's uh, a young girl whose father is basically a magician ma- based on George Harrison. And, uh, but, you know, the reaction to it is, is that, like, this is not a children's book. No one knows all these old 60s musicians who gives, no one will give a crap about this. So I junk it and I try and write a, um, a space-based young uh, middle grade novel for kids on a space station that kind of plays off all my time on Babylon 5 and, 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 and Deep Space Nine. And the answer I get back from every publishing, because the first novel just went out into the world and disappeared. The second novel, you know, uh, t- you know, no, no one ever wrote back on submission. The second one, all the houses write back and they go, we love this. This reminds us of our favorite 90s television. Of course, we could never publish it. Science fiction doesn't sell. <laughs> and, and 
science fiction children's books, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. There have been a couple attempts. They do not sell. Oh. Present day sci-fi stuff can work, but but base-based science fiction for the 8 to 12-year-old audience is non-existent. And uh, someone out there is like, I've got one out that's doing quite well right now. I'm sure it is, but that's the exception, not the rule. It does not sell. And uh, so no one would touch it. But it was really encouraging that they liked it. So I, um, I said, well, screw it. I'm going to write what I've always wanted to write which is a sort of sword and sorcery novel like I grew up on, only for 10-year-olds, and uh, minus uh, the male power fantasies, and including a much more diverse cast that is more reflective of the world we actually live in. And... Uh, and and it, and it and it um I was never that big in the Conan growing up. I was big on Michael Moorcock and Fritz Lieber, but I was never that big on Conan. But Conan has a story called the Frost Giant's Daughter, and uh, Conan's on a battlefield, and he's the only one to survive, and everyone else is dead. And he sees this beautiful woman that's kind of like a Valkyrie, sort of, and uh, she lures him off the battlefield with her feminine wiles, and and he chases her with the intent of having her and it's a trap and her two brothers are frost giants and they pop up and they try and kill conan and he kills both of them and she appeals to her father the frost giant god imir who takes her up into giant heaven so conan can't have her and it's supposed to be like laid on the swan it's supposed to be mythical and it and it is but as a kid i'm like why is she human size if her brothers are giants why did why did why didn't she get why isn't she a giant? And as an adult, I'm like, this is a really terrible story where the woman has no agency at all except to be a sex foil, and and it's offensive on several levels, and uh, and it wouldn't leave me alone. And I'm like, I want to write real Frost Giant's daughter who is not human size, who has agency, who is a kind of female Conan herself instead of a foil for Conan. And that's when I came up with the idea of a girl whose father was a frost giant and whose mother was human. And uh, that became my central character, Theana. And I tried writing stories about her as an adult, and they were horrible. And then I realized that the, the story was her as a child growing up. What's it like to be the smallest giant in a village of frost giants or the yeah. tallest human in a room full of humans? And uh, this coincided with my two failed attempts at writing children's books. And it all came together in in Frostborn, the first Thrones and Mons novel. And I naively decided I would pick a kind of small corner of my world that was based on Norse mythology loosely so that I could start there because I didn't even know if I could write a fantasy novel. And if the world, if it worked, then I could move out into other areas of the world. And, of course, the more I researched the actual Scandinavian peoples, the more I found out that they went everywhere. You know, they sacked Paris, and they went all the way to the Holy Roman Empire, and they warred with Inuits in Canada, and they went everywhere. And so my world building had to keep incorporating the analogous peoples that my Scandinavian peoples met. And before I ever started the story, I ended up writing about 40,000 words that included maybe 20 countries and had pantheons for several of them and histories for a lot of them and language and naming conventions for tons of them. And I began to realize around the same time, uh, I'm still an editor and several of my fantasy writers are also writing for D&D or Pathfinder or other games. And I'm noticing that their fiction is really inventive. And I feel like there's got to be a way in which play the role-playing games is informing their fiction in ways that my more old-school fiction writers aren't benefiting from. Mm-hmm. And so I start buying RPG books to read for the first time in years. I mean, I played everything when I was a kid, but I hadn't played in, in a decade or so. And uh, this is about the time that the Fate Core RPG 
goes on Kickstarter for the definitive version of Fate, and I back that heavily. And I start playing Fate in my world, and uh, I realize very quickly that I'm building a campaign setting as I'm building a novel. And uh, um, I, 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 I so naively with my with my with my very very limited uh, understanding of modern RPGs, I built what was basically a mashup of basic role playing and Call of Cthulhu which uses that system, like Cthulhu for magic and basic role-playing for mechanics. And I take it out to Gen Con and a table of science fiction, Saladin Ahmed, Scott Lynch, Howard Andrew Jones, Howard Taylor. They very kindly play test it with me. We have a good time. We play for a couple hours. And then they take me aside and say, you know, nobody uses tables anymore. <laughs> role-playing has changed a lot since you played it in the 90s. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was, uh, God, that was like eight or nine years ago. And, yeah. uh, and, and, that um, at that time, my own I'm playing with my kids and their friends, and we're playing the Fate RPG. And they start, and it's a great, I love Fate, but they start wanting more crunch. They start wanting more. How much gold do we get? Well, that's not really important in Fate. You got some gold. How much? You know. And and I, I'm like, okay, we need to play something with more crunch. And they want to play D and D because they've they've heard of it. it. Has the name recognition. And I, I, we start. We move into Lost Minds of Fendever, Delver, and uh, they don't get it at first. And they're like, oh wait, it's like a video game. And I'm like. Yes, but reverse that. <laughs> you know, it's like Skyrim. No, reverse that. <laughs> um, Skyrim is like the D. The penny drops, and like, oh my, and they realize, oh my gosh, this is where it all comes from. And uh, uh, but I'm skipping over the novels. Um, so Frostborn comes out. Nightborn, Skyborn, they're the three Thrones and Bones novels. Only the first one, is, I'm always pegged as the Norse guy, but only the first one is Norse. Uh, books two and three, my Norse protagonists leave the land of the ice and snow and they go, they cross about 2,000 miles and go to areas of the world modeled on Switzerland, the Holy Roman Empire, and a medieval Greece that has returned to its classical period uh, after a period of, of, uh, of, uh, being exploited by other countries it's fallen back on its roots and become xenophobic and it's 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 medieval it's a medieval greek nation pretending like it's still in its classical period um and then uh uh after that um because you asked about it i get uh, approached to write a star wars novel so i wrote the novel that uh, explains it's called pirate's price and it explains why the millennium falcon is parked outside hondo's shop on batu in the galaxy's edge okay it would be nice if it were sold in the Galaxy's Edge theme park, but it's not. <laughs> but if you go to the Galaxy's Edge theme park and you ride Smuggler's Run and you want to know why the hell Hondo has the Millennium Falcon instead of Chewbacca, you can read my novel to find out. And uh, <laughs> That's cool. I should mention with that one, too, I, I was having lunch with my editor at Comic-Con, and I said, I, you guys don't do audiobooks, right? And she goes, yeah, we do audiobooks. And I said, well, have you asked Jim Cummings if he'll do it? And she's like, no. And she calls the audio book department they said oh, we've already got somebody and she said well did you ask jim cummings and they said no he's probably too busy and she said well ask him and they asked jim and he said yes so i got someone fired but um <laughs> but off that job but uh not taking off that job but jim cummings for those who don't know is the voice of hondo onaka and the clone wars and rebels and as well as the voice of like a thousand other disney characters and uh jim came in and read the audiobook it, it was the first of the disney era star wars novels to be first person because when I got the job, I, I, I was like, you know, Hondo is the way he speaks. There's no way to do this novel in third person. And she's like, my editor's like, well, I don't think we've ever done a novel in third first person before, but see if you can do it. So it's all first person. And it's, so I've got Jim Cummings as Hondo reading the novel for the audiobook, And it's just, and it's, you know, I mean, Hondo's 
my favorite character in Star Wars probably. But he, you know, he maybe has like, what, five lines per cartoon and he's done like 20 cartoons. So, you know, that's maybe a chapter's worth of lines. So my audiobook is the most Hondo Cummings has ever Hondo. You know, it's like it's like a hundred times the amount of dialogue he's ever had to do for the character. Nice. Um, and then the last book was called Once Upon a Unicorn. And with Once Upon a Unicorn, I wanted to write. It's still middle grade. It's still eight to twelve. And I should say that like my books are written to be like the Hobbit, so that they're they're written for all ages, but they're targeted at eight to twelve. But um, like the Hobbit, if the Hobbit had girls in it anyway. But um, but I've got like fans in their fifties and sixties. But for Once Upon a Unicorn, I was very deliberately writing at the younger side of eight to twelve, and uh, it's a story set on a magical island called the Glistening Isles that are kind of like my Avalon, and the island is divided in half between seely and unseely fairy courts, and the unicorns live in the north half, and the nightmares live. In in the south half and they don't get along and it's platonic romeo and juliet about a unicorn and a nightmare who have to have an adventure together um i wanted to get closer to historical notion of fairies and how effing scary they are and so like if you're a unicorn on the glistening isles it's all flowers and sunshine but if you're a human that were to come to glistening isles it would be terrifying and i kind of put that think that's in between the lines so if you read that you know it's a fun like children's book it's suitable for young kids but i think you can look between the lines and go like oh wow these fairies are really something else and in fact, one of the things I want to do is go there in the gaming world and have it, you know, be from a human perspective, an absolutely terrifying place to go. There's a there's a character in the there is a single human character in the book, and he's someone who is taken by the fairies. And spoiler, he bumps into the fairy queen, and she's like, "No, why don't you come back to the palace with me? Didn't you have fun there? Didn't I always put you back together after I took you apart?" So for you, uh, moving into tabletop writing, when did you start submitting as a freelancer within tabletop uh, for like Hobo Press and other places? So I got, um, I don't remember which came first. Danny Herrero hired me to do some adventures for a 3D printed tabletop to go along with some of the 3D printed Kickstarters. And that was a real opportunity to cut my teeth. And uh, and my daughter at the time was very into My Little Pony. And there's a My Little Pony role-playing game called Tales of Equestria, which is awesome, by the way. And it's put out by River we start playing it and i mention online that we're playing it and you know they see that i've written for star wars and things and they contacted me and said would you like to write some adventures for my little punk and um i said yes with the caveat that i'm not gonna rhyme by myself my daughter has to rhyme with me because she's the expert and i'm sure they thought that meant that like she would say daddy let's write a story for twilight sparkle or something then i go off and write it what it actually meant was is that she shoved me away from my laptop she wrote the whole thing she handed it to me and i cleaned it up and uh and when it when we got paid for it she was like i'm like we're splitting this 50 50 and she's like why i did most of the work I practically wrote the whole thing. What's the na- what's the name of that adventure? Um, so it's in a book called The Curious Case of the Malfunctioning. You would have to ask me right now. <laughs> I can't think about names of things when I'm when oh, I'm talking. sorry. <laughs> uh, it's uh the, oh the malfunctioning. Uh, darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Tales for Quest. I'll just Google this because I, I the, the t- it's an anthology and I wrote two of the stories in it. Oh, okay, yeah. That's why I can't. Remember. Oh, the curious case of the malfunctioning prancer and other stories. Okay. So okay. we wrote. Uh, 
shape and piece of cake. A malfunctioning prancer, you said? Yeah, it's P-R-A-N-C-E-R with okay. dots over each one. And uh, P dot, R dot, A dot, you know, prancer, like it, it stands for something. It's a machine. Um, and uh, But we wrote ship shape and and uh, piece of cake for that. And uh, very proud of it. So she was nine or something at the time and, and uh, was a, pub- is a published game author already. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be uh some uh i guess don't i don't know maybe she's gonna be worried about peaking early or something but <laughs> she, she thinks writers are all poor she doesn't want to have anything to do with it anymore uh, yeah it's true though it's true <laughs> but uh so so then cobalt press is a, there's this thing about me which is that if i like something i can't be a passive participant i have to involve myself whether the people who created it want my involvement or not and uh so I'm playing Tales of the Old My Grief, and uh, I'm playtesting it, actually, I think, for Cobalt Press. I think I, I agreed to playtest. So the book hasn't come out yet. And uh, we're playing the campaign. Uh, spoiler, okay? Yeah. Um, the Honey Queen, there's a little girl who 50 years ago disappeared, and she's in a, a honey-induced coma by this giant bee fae called the, the Honey Queen. And her the girl's spirit is inhabiting swarms of bees and things like that, and it's kind of creepy. But you're supposed to find the girl and 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 free her. But you're at the same time like you're not really supposed to honey queen. She's very popular in the forest for her honey. And uh, one of my players is my nephew, who's playing a minotaur, um, a priestess of Hecate, cleric of Hecate. And we get to the final where you're supposed to like free the girl, and the bee queen's like, no, I don't want to. And Jonathan goes, um, I'll take her place. And he's like, an adult minotaur priestess of Hecate is going to be a lot more better conversationalist than a 10-year-old girl who's been in a coma for 50 years. I'll take her place. We roll like persuasion, and he gets a natural 20 and all that. I'm like, oh my wow. God, that. Honey Queen agrees. And so the girl wakes up from her 50-year coma, and he lays down at the table, and honey pours all over him. And all my friends look at each other, and my players, and they go, did Jonathan just leave the campaign? (laughs) Is he out now? And so I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to keep him in the campaign? And the Marguerite Forest in Cobalt Press is a living woods that reacts to you when you're in it. It's a, it is an entity and it has its own agenda. And I look at that and, I'm, and, and, the, and the Honey Queen is in commune with the Marguerite. They talk about that in the book. And I'm like, OK, a new warlock class where your patron is the Marguerite Forest. And he's going to come out of this coma and be the agent of the Marguerite. And that's how I keep him in the campaign. And me being me, I can't homebrew that. If it's not official, it's not real. So I call up Matt Corley, who's the lead designer on Tales of McGreeve, and say, we have to make a Warlock class so I can keep this player in my game. And we, he, he loved the idea. We took it to Wolfgang and pitched it. Wolfgang said, okay. And so they hire me. They let me... Uh, the warlock patron that's in the Marguerite Player's Guide. And then Wolfgang also hired me to write a short story for the Warlock Player's Guide that it's kind of like the old Ecology of article. It's called How to Train Your Griffin, How to Rain Your Griffin, How to Train Your Dragon Play. Gotcha. And and that was my initial involvement with Cobalt Press. And then I continued to write stuff for them. And a lot of times it's just there's an area of the world that I really, really like and I can't bear anyone else to do it or it not to get done or not to get done the way I think it should be done so i pitch that and then i write it and um they've been really wonderful to work with and i, I love everybody there and i it's it's it is cough cough my favorite uh campaign setting we get to 2020 march 2020 and i'm trying to write a no- an adult novel my first and my father dies 
and the pandemic happens right after. Like he dies in March and then the next week is when they're like, yeah, you can't go indoors anymore. And uh, and I couldn't write anymore. And so I thought, well, I'll, for a change of pace, I will do like a 30 page adventure set in my Norse land of Norengard. And I'll just that'll be a fun thing to do for the next couple months. And I'll just put it out like for free or something. And and then maybe I can write again. And that 30 page adventure becomes a what? 320 page source book. Yeah. With <laughs> another 200 plus page adventure book and the player's guide and a Grammy nominated composer who loves Star Wars yeah. calls me up and offers to do a soundtrack and uh, David Joseph Wesley and John Popson at Evan Cool Minis makes a miniature for it and Heroic Maps who I've loved for years makes like 60 friggin' maps for it and uh, Mike Sheridan and Andrew Mills make a 3D printable board game for it and so that was my you know I'll just do this for the month of March and April yeah and uh and and it, it it's been a kind of career change. So um, that's been RPG design has been the focus ever since. You know, I, honestly, and just my my piece about it. Um, I initially read it right before I guess it went because we you and I had worked together on this show that I pitched you on to run uh, to showcase um, your campaign setting. Um, uh, some of which got on to Cobalt Press's channel um, through the good graces of uh, Dot, the producer over there. And um, I remember reading that whole source book and just thinking to myself, like, like unusually well written. Because <laughs> normally, like, source source setting books or whatever, like, they don't necessarily, like, cause you to turn the page. And I think that is perhaps something that's maybe been lost a little bit in some of the supplements, is that you are still writing in such a way to at least in my opinion like for your campaign setting book you're writing in such a way to appeal to the reader and also provide the information that you need to run games thank you i hope i hope that's true that's that's, that's you know i i i love good source book i want everything to be full of story potential not just not just this is here because it's cool but this is here and you could spin a story off of it but i also want it to be a piece of art in itself i mean i've and also i I've, I've joked that i'm putting out art books disguised as rpg manuals because i mm-hmm. i i you know, I have set budgets, but if I get to somewhere and I need a piece of art, I'm like, I don't want this. I don't want to. I don't want to. I'll hell with it. Let's just buy that art because <laughs> because I yeah. love working with artists and and I don't want like ten years from now to look back on the book and be like, if only I had sprung for the statue of that yeah god for this page this this, this page of just text is so boring what did, why didn't i pay that extra <laughs> i feel the same way now that i'm working on vineyard and i'm like working with artists and our wonderful art director elaine and uh getting to see like the new art as it comes in and like their interpretation because i primarily work with the writers i'm writing a good chunk of the book as well and uh seeing like their interpretations, like with the guidance of our art director to sort of bring stuff to life is so exciting. I love seeing the new drafts of stuff. Yep, it really is. There's something deeply satisfying about it that, um, you know, you, you've you written something and then you've put it out there. And then also you're working with this team who has their own perspective on uh, what it is that you've created. And in a lot of ways, you work together with them. You're a member of a small team like that. And for you, it's like you're you're the primary writer. You bring in other writers for like adventures. But that does seem really great and satisfying. If if only it paid more. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
but well, uh yeah working towards that i it was gonna say you know on that i um the the detour in all this because the the thrones and bones rpg came out last year and then this year i haven't had anything out and i'm gonna have a bunch out next year uh and let's talk about uh your newest kickstarter that just completed um the new adventure that you were adding to it and uh if you want to cover like you know sort of the journey i know you've brought in other writers to write various other adventures because they have you have the setting book you have the campaign adventure uh supplement you have a player's guide you have uh like you said the vtt assets you have the soundtrack and now you have another adventure yep so the setting book is 100 percent me except for the rules for the viking ball game of cannot and the reason that is is because Brian Suskin wrote his adventure to use it. He did not like my Knatliker rules, and he rewrote them. And then I did not like his Knatliker rules, and I rewrote them. And then Brian and I together created what became the final Knatliker rules. So so the setting book is all me except for half the Knatliker rules, and I couldn't tell you which half. And uh, But then um, but then I wanted to do, you know, the, the core book has two adventures in it for first and second level. And I wanted to do a follow-up book that would carry that all the way to eighth level. And that became Sagas of Norengard. And for that, I wrote three of the adventures, and then Sarah Madsen, Ben McFarlane, Jeff Lee, and Brian Suskin, all of whom I knew from through Cobalt Press, wrote the other adventures. Then um, the book that's coming out that we just finished kickstarting is called Vengeance of the Valoraven. And it is an eighth level adventure. It could slot, it's a seventh level adventure, I'm sorry. It could slot in perfectly right after Sarah Madsen's adventure in Sagas of Norengard before my final adventure that closes out that book. So it could it could just expand that campaign. Um, or it could be standalone or you could drop it into any northern campaign. I hired Kelly Pollock, also of Cobalt Press, to, um, and Kelly's also a fiction writer too, so check her books out, to finish that for me based on where I was headed with it. And so we co-wrote that adventure together. And it came about because um, I started, I, I read an article and I don't, there's a, there was an experiment done. I know it was done in Yosemite. I feel like I was reading an article about it being done somewhere else, but, but I know in Yosemite, they, they, um, wolves went extinct there in the 1920s. And then they reintroduced the wolves in the 1990s. And they found out that like the wolves kept the elk population under control or the caribou population or whatever it was. And because the caribou were not eating the plant life, then the rain didn't road the hillsides so the hillside silt didn't end up choking up the river and and when the wolves came back the whole environment turned around fish came back to the river flowers bloomed on the hillside birds and bees and everybody was happy and uh and they were saying that you know wolves are not this big evil predator like they're so often portrayed they're actually vital to an ecosystem and i became really uh guilt-ridden with how many wolves i've killed as laura croft and uh (laughs) yeah and, um, you know, the way that wolves, rats, and goblins are what you mow through as a low-level player. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I, I want to do something that's wolf positive. I want to tell a story where the wolves are the good guys. And spoiler if you're going to play this campaign. So um, previously, you know, when I did the core book, um, there's a city called Sindholm. And I wrote a bit of a backstory for the city where um, 800 years ago, there's a Jarl. And he has a wolf as a companion as when he's a young adventurer. And then when he becomes Jarl, everyone's like, you're going to get rid of the wolf, right? And he's like, no, I'm going to keep the wolf. And they're like, you can't keep him. Well, it's one thing to run around the wood, woods rangering it up with a wolf. But you're a Jarl now. you got to get rid of your wolf. And then he has a child. He still won't get rid of his wolf. And then one day he comes home and the child has blood all over her bedsheets. And the wolf comes bounding up to him with a bloody muzzle. 
and he thinks, oh my God, I should have listened to everyone. And he takes out his axe and he cuts the wood, splits the wood, wolf's head open. And then he goes around the bed and behind the bed is a Valrava, which is a creature not from Scandinavian myth, but from from uh, 1800s Scandinavian folklore, not from Viking legend, but from later. The story is when a when a when a raven, a chieftain or a jarl in my case, who dies in the woods and is left unburied, if he eats the chief's heart, he turns into this monster called a Val Raven, which is half wolf, half raven. And if the Val Raven can then eat a child's heart, they'll turn into a humanoid. And so the Val Raven was there to eat the little girl's heart. The wolf saved her life. The man misinterpreted. He killed his best friend right after his best friend saved his daughter. And he's Heartbroken, builds a giant statue of the wolf. He never smiles again or does anything of note. But she um, is is uh, connected to the spirit of the wolf and founds the Path of the Wolf Barbarians, which is a barbarian tradition in the core book. And so she's the founder of that tradition. So when I want to do this wolf positive story, I'm like, oh my god, there's the backstory right there. You know, that's the the Val Ravens are are the are the bad guys that, that the wolves are after and uh, i won't spoil too much but it but the story goes into that legend and 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 the cyclical repetition of that legend and uh it gets all wrapped up in it so it actually ends up being the scariest frigging thing that i've done <laughs> in games or novels um it's 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 uh it, it does have a content warning on it but uh, for child endangerment, but which most, but it, but it's, uh, but it started out as as the impulse to be wolf positive. It is a it is a happy ending story with uh, with uh, positive social change for the better among these faux Vikings. Um, but it does have some dark monsters in it that are pulled from some of the darker things in the Scandinavian myth. And so you know, I, there's something beautiful that happens when a story writes itself, and this one did. This one just was just I I I um going back to what I said earlier about how my friends are 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 way more talented than I am. Um the way that I fool myself into writing is I world build so much, whether it ends up on the page or not, that I convince myself that I am not writing. I am excavating from a reality that exists. And therefore, um it takes the pressure off me because it's not my creation i'm just uncovering it and showing it to you but it exists independently of me somewhere out there in the realm of ideas and all i'm doing is brushing the dust off of it so you can see it too they used to drive my editor crazy because she would ask for a change and i'd be like i can't do that and she's like why i'm like because that's not the way it happened and she's yeah. like yeah but we need to move this event so i'm nope can't do it <laughs> that's not the way it happened she's like what are you talking about it's not the way it happened i'm just asking you to change this thing and i'm like i understand that it can't be changed because that's not the way it happened. That's so. the beauty of uh, self-publishing, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, and I noticed that sort of through line with your work and the setting books and the adventures and everything, because when I'm reading it and I'm reading, let's take an example from like the first uh, two chapters, which are the ter- first two adventures, and um, or at least the first two adventures, which are in the back of the setting book, as I should say. Um, but when you're looking at investigating either like something like the Draugr or some of these uh, mythical creatures that you interact with, there's a lot of lore that's kind of built into the adventure. It's not a bare-bones adventure by any means, so that you can, like, as a GM, take that to either inform your decisions, you can narrate it if you want, you can provide that context to people when they do make these history checks to make the world feel alive. And that is definitely something that's very present within the setting book. It's like the world does actually come alive around you because of all of these context additional clues that you provided. And it's something that I've really enjoyed about both your adventures and your setting book. Thank you. I um you know, one of my one of my one of the things that I hate, a uh, possible exception for Hoth, is I hate monoplanets. Oh yeah. 
I never wanted to make Viking land. I never wanted to make a, an RPG that was just completely Vikings. And so um, in the books and the game, uh, there's there's a lot of cultural back and forth, even in, in relatively isolationist communities. So like the sword that the boy uses in my series is actually forged by a, a you know it was it was made by the Gordian Empire which is like a faux Roman Empire uh, thousands of years ago it is the same sword that the that the founder of the country of Ireland is sort of a uh, there's a woman in the history who's sort of Utica meets King Arthur and she used that sword to forge out her kingdom and and now it's ended up in in Norengard and the Vikings have it but you know it's not a, they didn't they didn't mint it it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't built on the sky forge in their backyard you know it was. Uh, yeah. It was minted a thousand years ago. It's already part of two other history and legend under different names. Uh, and so in the book, none of that is in the book, right? But in the book, that I, but I knew it all. So in the book, when the boy meets the, the dragon Orm, the Linorm, the, the Norse dragon, Orm looks at the sword and sniffs at it and says, that's not one of mine, but it has a more storied history than you know. And that's the only line in the book that indicates that there's anything more to the sword. Mm -hmm. But I was able to put that line in because I had a folder somewhere with a thousand words on everything the sword had done before it appeared in this book. Yeah. And some of that finally comes out and is in the sword's entry in the world book, in the core rule playing. But, but at the time I was writing the novel, you don't need to put all that crap in. That would just bog it down. But because I knew that crap... The dragon knows that crap, too. And yeah. so he says, you know, there's more to that sword than you know, which is all you need to say in the novel yeah. to make it feel like it exists beyond the immediate page. You know, it's not right. the yellow brick road where if Dorothy goes left or right, there's no story. Yeah. You know, you want to feel like you can go in any direction. And so yeah. if, the, if the creator does all that extra work, then little bits will come out naturally, hint at that extra work without having to show all that extra work. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And I love how you, for the first adventure, it keeps it to the uh, local community and like what they're dealing with. It's still dealing with like the ancient Draugr and like some of the history surrounding that. And then for the second adventure, you go to a dwarf community for uh, that entire adventure. And then for the third adventure, we uh, involve a, a entirely separate community, the uh, the the mountain elves, the... Bartlefar. Um, Yes, I was gonna say it incorrectly. Thank you for saving. Me. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's. I think even though it's like all kind of the setting is like the, the in the published book is kind of wrapped in like that Norse tundra area. There's still little bits of all these other cultures and societies that are present in it, and it makes it very interesting and fun. And I, we have to talk about the board game and how fun it is. We have to take. We have to talk about the board game. I have played that board game at least 100 hours of me just playing that board game with my friends. Um, and of course, I play with you a few times. So uh, can you tell us about like where you got the idea for the board game and like how it evolved and everything like that, which is something you can get in the setting book. Um, do you yeah. sell the board game rules separately? Uh, the board game rules are in the setting book. They're in the player's guide, which is cheap enough that you could just... And, and then they're um, they're in the back of the novel, Frostborn, and they come with the 3D printable board game. So it's, so, it's so fun. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'll let well, you talk. It, so, thank you. Um, it, uh, thank you for what you said, not thank you for letting me talk. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, so, I created Deanna Frostborn 
for the novel. And she, I, at the time, in middle grade, this is not true anymore, but at the time, the boys all got to be the action stars. They were the Percy Jacksons swinging their swords, and the girls were all magical. You know, the women, the girls' roles in middle grade were to be the cautious one, the clever one, the bookish one, the magical one, but the boys were the idiots who swung the swords and kicked down the doors. And I wanted my girl to be the issues. I wanted my girl to be big and strong and fighting first. And, uh, and you know, and and I wanted the boy to be the one who's like, you know, maybe we, didn't have, maybe we could have climbed to the window. We didn't have to kick the door down um, and to be the strategist. And and but he was just kind of defined as he's not the big, strong, tough good fighting one and you, that, that's that the what is he then he's just a, he's just an empty space he's got to be good at something he's got to have something that he's good at well she's athletic she plays cannot like her against giants twice her size and wins so so he's not athletic so uh i found out the vikings were crazy about this board game called Hanefataffel, and it's one of the taffel games it's an asymmetric game where you 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 have uh the sides have different vet numbers of of pieces and you're trying to escape the board and the other side's trying to capture you and uh and they were crazy about it until chess replaced it and so i thought okay cool he's a gamer and and gamers are the same whatever a kid today playing their their xbox or their steam game feels like that's what he feels like and of course right along this time is when that greek d20 pops up in the news you know that that's got that's a d20 with all the greek letters on it oh god i would i would totally i would totally hire tom cruise to steal that thing from the museum for me because i need that i need that but uh gamers have always been gamers and um and so i originally he was just gonna play hanefetafel but there's no uh, agreed upon rules for hanefetafel there there's like so many different reconstructions because the vikings didn't write it down they knew how to play already and uh and 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 so there's like you know some boards have nine by nine some boards are like 15 by 15 some boards are 12 by 12 some reconstructions use dice some don't use dice at all some say you can escape the board in any direction others say you have to escape at the corners there's no one set of rules and i'm like you know what it would be really i need to know what the rules are the rules are going to come into play in the story i need to know what the rules are and it would be better if instead of picking someone else's reconstructed version i just made my own rules so i built a board i decided on a nine by nine board and i built a board out of parts from like michael's and i played all these different rule variants and i cherry picked the rules i liked and threw out the rules i didn't and then i made up new rules to make the rules i'd cobbled together fit and then i made some new rules that were just necessary for the dramatic purposes of the novel and i'd spent two weeks on that and I, I, my, my two old nephews, my brother's two oldest children, are, are at, the, at the time they were chess champions in Alabama where we lived. They, they, one of my nephews went two years without playing a game of chess, walked in uninvited to a chess championship and won. Um, Just a flex. I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing. So I took them to Starbucks and got them coffees and set the game down between them. And they played each other for three hours, game after game after game. And uh, I had to pry it away from them because my wife is like, dinner's been ready for a while. Come home. And, uh, and you know, they loved it. And that's when I knew I had something. That, you know, these two people who are much smarter than I am couldn't couldn't break it because that's the first thing I want to do is to try and break it and played each other over and over and had a blast. And uh, so it's heavily based on Hanafitafel, but it doesn't, it's not isomorphic to any one version of an epitaphal. It, it is its own game. And I was so pleased when Board Game Geek listed it as a real game uh, in the Hanefetafel family. But then I became the board game guy. So my publisher's <laughs> like, you're going to make another one for book two, right? Um, <laughs> so 
there's a game in book two called Charioteers, which is meant to mimic the chariot races in the Hippodrome in Constantinople, because we go to a city called Gradasho, which is my version of Constantinople right before it falls and uh, and becomes Istanbul. And um, and and that game is less based on. I looked at uh, I looked at the. It's a back. It's in the backgammon family. So I looked at Sonnet and the Royal Game of Ur as inspirations because those are like the antecedents of of the precedents of backgammon. But um, but it's less based on any one game. But it's uh, it's a racing dice game that's in the backgammon family that I created and will be in a project next year. Yeah, I remember. Um... Novel, but it will be in it'll make its rpg debut at the end of next year oh okay okay got it yeah um the the game itself like thrones and bones it's such a great segue especially for like downtime and stuff like that when you, if you're playing a campaign within the thrones and bones setting um it can mean something you know you can integrate it into play normally as a gm or you can just do it as like a segue as like oh we only have like an hour to play today let's just play some some board game instead but um yeah, it's brilliant. I love it so much. Um, and is the are the physical prints of the board game out already? Um, you can buy you can buy um, the 3D print files and print them out on a home printer. Oh, okay, okay. They, they're not they're not producing it. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. Um, you could pay somebody to print it for you, but that'd be that's all great. You know, for what it would cost to pay someone to print all this out for you, you could buy a cheap home printer easier. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. I think it's like sixty or seventy dollars to have it three D printed. Only three hundred dollars for a three D printer. So. Yeah, I gotcha. Buy, buy an Ender, an Ender two, and print it out yourself. Got it. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, I think we now we're gonna segue into if you would like to talk about anything in particular. We're of course gonna provide your links in the description of the podcast and link to everything, all of your projects here. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about? Um, just the, the next year projects, I guess. Um, so once Long Robin fulfills, then the next project I'm doing is going to be called Tales from Stolke's Hall. And it's another first for me. It is adult, not children's, fantasy short stories by other authors. I am not in the book. It's 10 stories, maybe maybe 11 if somebody comes in that's late. But 10 stories or, or nine stories and an epic poem. Um, other writers set in Norengard geared toward adults and uh so it's the first time my fictional world has made the lap out of children's and it's the first time other writers have written prose for me instead of myself and it's gonna have a game component there'll either be a, a game edition with an appendices or there'll be a supplement as a separate booklet that takes the magic items and characters and and spells from the these stories and puts them in 5e terms so you can add them back into your campaign oh okay I know some people. It, you know some people too, but <laughs> you, you know some people that what? Oh, they can do that. Oh, oh, cool. But, um, <laughs> we could do. We we're not going to talk about it on the podcast, but <laughs> okay, okay. So, yeah, um, the stories are all in. The stories are all in. Cool. All in. And uh, except for one that may or may not come in, and um, you'll recognize a lot of the names, and oh, great. Uh, including one that role playing gamers will really, really recognize, and uh, and I'm psyched to have him in the book, and uh, and then that'll kickstart the instant i've fulfilled vengeance of all robin so i'm hoping it'll be like march april and then um cool. as soon as that fulfills and that'll take longer because there's going to be like a trade edition of the book that will go out through ingram and then there'll be a rpg edition of the book that's out through 
drive through RPG. So mm-hmm. that may take the rest of the year. But then whenever that is done, um, I'm committed to the first adventure in Thrones and Bones that does not take place in Norengar. So I've started work already on Crisis in Castle Briar, which takes place in the city of Castle Briar in the country of Nalinia, which is my Switzerland of the 1400s and uh, it um, it's it's going to be a, a source book and adventure uh, like anything else I thought I'll do a short adventure in Castle Briar and then I realized I'll have to teach people what Castle Briar is and I need new subclasses and races for Castle uh, Ancestries species for Castle Briar and I hope we go with Ancestries and not species yeah. and uh, but I'm happy with anything that's not race and um, and um, the rules for Charioteers board game will be in that <laughs> wonderful <laughs> And Full circle, other, exactly. And so uh, it's probably going to be at least a hundred pages, and maybe maybe a hundred fifty page hardcover. But it's also going to be the um, the kind of loose introduction prequel to a huge adventure path. I want to tell that's globe, that's that's continent spanning. Originally, I was going to do that as one big ginormous book, but I'd like to wait and make sure that one D and D doesn't, you know. Uh, go in a completely different direction and shutter the OGL or something like that right. before, before I spend all of my money on something I might not be allowed to publish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was, you know, I was looking at timelines for when I was going to get Vineyard out the door and like, because of the one D and D announcement, I was like, well, I can't do it next year. Uh, late next year, I have to do this spring next year. I have no choice now because uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, um, well, yeah like a first to 10 level adventure book and like it was going to be huge and and so instead the the first chapter of that will be a standalone introduction that could could stand on its own or could spill into the larger story and then we'll put that out and and that way it won't be if if we end up having to take that if if it if that has to change from 5e to 1 D before it becomes part of a larger thing that's fine quite another thing to put out a first to 10 level adventure in early 2024 only to find out it's completely obsolete yeah absolutely yeah and when uh your project launches um i will probably I'll put out that information on my outlets in the newsletter here. Um, thank you so much, Lou, for stopping by and uh, chatting with us today. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can just subscribe to the patron so I can afford my editor, essentially. <laughs> thank you so much for stopping by.